hear now what may be God's word to us through the voice of the Holy Spirit, using the words of Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and I will be adding verses 13 and 14 as well. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. And you who want to be justified by the law, have cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy God, thank you for the honor and privilege of preaching and the sacred call of listening, which, which we share now in this worship. May the meditations of our hearts, may the words of my mouth, and may our simple presence together be a blessing to us and to others and honor you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it being the second week in a row that Larry has done the children's sermon, and with Larry and me now preaching consecutive sermons about circumcision in the early church, you might think that we are in for a very different kind of summer sermon series. (laughs) And I almost proceeded with some really bad puns here, and I've taken those out. So for already, you should be grateful. Uh, Because Paul said, and rightly so, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So we will not fixate on that particular topic today. But we will attend to what these debates in the early community of faith can teach us and show us about our life together and our life with God. Last week... We discovered among the early apostles the gift of compromise, which heals the wounds of extremism and offers a way forward when things are stuck. And as Larry alluded, this week a different gift emerges for us, ironically through the rather uncompromising stance of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church he helped to found in Galatia. That gift is freedom. In this sermon, we will probe what it means to be free in Christ 
and to see how this freedom binds us in the direction of love for others and for God. For freedom, Christ, excuse me, for freedom, Paul urged his listeners, Christ has set us free. Paul was troubled, and this is an understatement, by the itinerant missionaries who preached the necessity of circumcision to the new converts of faith. Today we label these missionaries as Jewish Christians, which is an anachronism because it imposes a hyphenated existence on those who conceive themselves as Jewish, not Jewish-Christian. Their belief in Christ was an expression of their Jewish faith. And they believed that in order to be incorporated fully into that faith and into God's covenant community, the Gentile converts needed to participate and undergo the Jewish ritual that traced its roots all the way back to the patriarch Abraham. Paul, leaving compromise behind, argued stridently against that teaching. He demanded that the Galatians stand firm and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For if you let yourselves be circumcised, he said, then Christ will be not of little benefit, but of no benefit to you. For Paul, freedom meant no longer relying on adherence to the Jewish law as a means to be justified or made right with God. From his argument comes our Protestant insistence that our relationship, our right relationship with God, comes primarily from what God does for us in Christ before what we do for God. Paul emphasized Christ's death and resurrection as a hinge point in reality, a cataclysmic event that shattered the powers and forces holding humanity captive. To be circumcised, Paul thought, meant returning to that former state of captivity captivity, for no good reason, like voluntarily marching from an Independence Day parade into a life-term sentence at a high-security prison. You foolish Galatians, he fumed. Did you experience so much for nothing? Paul could not fathom the idea that those who were freed would find themselves back in bondage. And it's that very same concern that drives the work of Elizabeth and the staff and the volunteers at OAR. Those who work to spare the formerly incarcerated from a new form of captivity on the streets or a return to the prison cells of their prior life. Their work is impassioned advocacy for freedom, the very freedom that Paul desired for his church in Galatia. And we who claim to be Christian, we whose identities are hyphenated by the reality of the one we know and seek to know as Jesus and as Christ, we are called also to seek and to share that freedom. And when we think of freedom, we may conjure up those rights guaranteed to us by the Constitution 
or perhaps the cries of William Wallace in Braveheart. But for Paul, what does freedom look like or sound like? What does it do? Here are just a few things that we might say. First, freedom is more than self-indulgence. For you were called to freedom, Paul said, so do not use your freedom for self-indulgence. Being free can mean having for oneself that which has been too long improperly denied. Or, on the other way, letting go or being relieved of what has been too long an unnecessary burden. But there's a lot of gray area here because the difference between self-indulgence and self-love the right kind of self-love is murky. We can cross one line into the other. What Paul seems concerned about most is about freedom being used in excessive service to the self or where freedom is misunderstood as a permission slip or a blank check to do or to buy whatever seems pleasing or desirable in any given moment. If I were to offer a clarifying image, it would be this. As a kid, I would sometimes daydream about being one of those contestants on the television game shows where the winner is given five minutes to fill their grocery cart with as many things that they can pull from the shelves. At a young age, for me, the kingdom of heaven would be me on that show in an electronic goods store, pulling the Nintendos and the computers and the stereos and everything that I wanted, the remote control cars, you name it into my cart. I'll confess that still sounds pretty good. <clears throat> but I'm a preacher now, and so I've got to say that is not the kingdom of heaven. And that certainly isn't what freedom is, as Paul defines it. For a chronically hungry person, freedom means more food on the plate. But for those with privilege, freedom, freedom may mean less indulgences, filling the cart. Paul goes through an extended description showing the differences between the freedom granted in the spirit and the bondage imposed by the flesh. In fact, the word self-indulgence that we've been using so far in actuality is the translation for the Greek word for flesh. And unfortunately, this distinction between the freedom of the spirit and the, the freedom and the bondage of the flesh, it's at times distorted our understanding of flesh and materiality as somehow inferior to the so-called spiritual realm. And that's tragic. Because we celebrate a God who created the world, who called it good, and chose to inhabit that world, this one, in human flesh and blood. That's aside the point. The point is that Paul is speaking of a freedom that opens us to give and to receive that which deepens our connection with God and others. The fruits of love, joy, peace, generosity, self-control. All of them the opposite of the frenetic shopping sprees for non-essential items. For Paul... The only essential thing is faith working through love. 
So again, Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love, and listen closely, through love, become slaves to one another. This leads to a second observation about freedom. Freedom means being not entirely free. In the very same paragraph, Paul told the Galatians that they were called to freedom and that they were to become slaves or servants. How can both be true? Recently, I heard somebody say, wisdom that is found elsewhere, that everything contains its opposite. For example, uh, a left-hand turn, for you, that's your left. Uh, A left-hand turn contains its opposite because three rights make a left. Similarly, in Scripture, the psalmist can say to God, even the darkness is not dark to you because the night to you is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light. In Paul's letter and in lived reality, we find that freedom does contain its opposite, a kind of bondage. When we speak of being freedom-bound, we are not only describing freedom as the destination, we are acknowledging that within freedom itself comes a kind of non-freedom. More than freeing us from all cares and concerns, our freedoms actually put us in a bind. Because what we give ourselves to in our freedom becomes what we find ourselves serving. And this is both a warning and a blessing. A warning in that the self-indulgent desires or pleasures that we pursue in our freedom become our masters. They own us rather than the other way around. Our carts so full of electronics have no room for anything else. Spinach, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. And more positively, when we give ourselves freely in love to the other, we become bound to them in beautiful ways. This is the hope for the marriage beyond the freely given I do at the wedding. In the same way, having freely entered into the work for those coming out of prison, the people of OAR find themselves bound to those ex-inmates and their families and that work. Their cares and concerns increase with each new client they serve. Here again the hymn from Philippians that you've either heard hundreds of times or maybe this is your first time hearing it. That Christ Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, that is, having all the freedom of God, did not regard that as something to be exploited, that is, used in pursuit of self-indulgence, but emptied himself and taking the form of a slave, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, which led to his being exalted and given the name above all names. This hymn is an ode to the freedom that leads to the bondage that frees. To twist your minds even further, we can say that in God's freedom, we are freed from freedom itself. 
In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are free to eat. You are not free. For the day you eat it, you will die. Note how God's freedom was binding in such a way that Adam and Eve were meant to live. Their sin was confusing the lifeline of that command for a chain. Confusing freedom for fetters. We confuse the two all the time. Sometimes you may look at an ultra-Orthodox Jew or a member of a strict religious community like the Amish and, and see a lot of rules and regulations, a lot of thou shalts and thou shalt nots that add up to a self-denying system of captivity. But to members of that community, the liberal freedoms and unlimited range of options of our technological and secular age probably seem just as binding. As Larry shared last week, for the Jew, the law is freedom because it binds all aspects of daily life into a constant act of reaching out to God, creating a living and breathing connection between one's life on earth and the God in heaven. So I think we can take a more empathetic take on those false teachers that Paul was yelling at in the book of Galatians. Perhaps they were not trying to bind the Galatians, but to free them to a holy reality that touched upon the most intimate places of their bodies and their lives. Where they erred, in Paul's eyes, was that they were imposing their freedoms on others in such a way that made them more captive than free. So then we can say also that freedom is granted. It is not imposed. We must be careful not to impose our freedoms on others, lest they be less free. For example, if our freedom to avoid sacrifice leads others to be forced into sacrifices not of their own choosing, then that is not the freedom of Christ. If our freedom to buy low-cost goods denies workers a living wage and future generations access to clean air or water, then that may not be Christ's freedom. The goal for all of us, all of us, is freedom. We are freedom-bound. But it is a journey of stages. It requires vigilance and discernment and ongoing effort. This is why we pray week after week for freedom from sin. This is why we in the Presbyterian Church say we are reformed and always reforming. As a tradition, we are known in part for our emphasis on order and process and rules, which can sometimes seem restrictive, but at their heart, they're designed to free us to the movement of God's Spirit. Not too long ago, our denomination determined that our book of order became so overburdened with statutes and subclauses that it no longer served as a strong foundation upon which to stand, but as a heavy weight holding us down. So we undertook a process of loosening it up a bit, leaving room for more yeses than noes. 
We still have a ways to go as a church and as people, but we are freedom bound. Free to be bound with and for those whom God calls us to love and serve. Free to be ourselves. So to close, I just offer a few invitations for how we might live into that freedom together. First, just reflect on what freedom may mean for you. What do you need, or what do you need to let go of, or to be freed from, to live abundant life with Christ? Make that your prayer. Be mindful of what you and your freedom put in your cart, because it will become your master. As the good book says, choose wisely whom you will serve. Also, seek not to impose your freedom on others, and instead work to enable them to find their own. Perhaps join the work of OAR and Guest House and other organizations that serve those in prison with your time or your talents. You may find that by helping those held captive, you may find yourself freed as well. I know of members of our church who have given their lives in ministry to those in prison and how it has freed them. It has changed them. Consider joining that work. And lastly, in the life of this church, of Westminster Presbyterian Church, as a member of the Reformed Faith and the Presbyterian Church USA, you're invited to join your pastors, your elders, and staff into living into the freedom we share in Christ by being both vigilant and opportunistic so that we are helped and not hindered by the structures and the traditions that have served us so well. For this Paul knew, and this we may fully come to know, that for freedom Christ has set us free. Amen.